0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, the Hall of Fame edition of Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today Hall of Famer Bill Benner and Hall of Famer Robin Miller. I've been looking forward to this podcast for a long time. I've told several people that I was about to record it, and the universal reaction I received was, oh my. Bill, Robin, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks
1: for having me,
2: just make sure you got that eight-second delay
0: button handy. <laughs> <laughs> I should make sure that I mentioned that the the Hall of Fame part of the introduction is because Bill Benner recently was selected into the United States Basketball Writers Association 2021 Hall of Fame class. And recently, Robin Miller was announced as an inductee into the Motorsports Hall of Fame 2021 you both came, I think, if I read this correctly, to the Indianapolis Star at the same time, and you're going into your respective no. Hall of Fames at the same time.
2: Well, no, Bill got Bill was ahead of me. Bill was, I think, Bill started a year before I did. He he was part of the Kitty core with Buster Shepard and Jeff Smalley, and I, I That was probably what Billy 66, late sixty seven, early sixty eight.
1: That was it was ni- nineteen sixty eight, Robin. Yeah, because I started or, or actually, yeah. actually actually to be accurate, it was the fall of sixty seven. Uh I had just started yeah. at I just started class at the what was called the IU Extension, now IUPUI. And I was going uh, going to college during the day and working as a scoreboy, the kitty core, uh, at night. Yep. And yep. Y- the thing is, bo-
2: what, what nobody can imagine is especially since nobody reads the paper anymore, but <laughs> to think that the star was put out with five people every night, and that was the ma- maybe, yeah, maybe six on Fridays and Saturdays, but five, four or five mostly, and and we put out we put out five editions a night with that group of people. It's it was it's amazing, and you know, hell, Bill and I learned from the best, Simon Bride, Bob Collins, John Banch, But it was tough love, and uh, you know, Bill Bill then uh, went to IU, but. And I started out as a store boy, so it was – the way we made it was, you know, cutting horse wires and being in competition with each other. How many games can we take on Friday night? And it was – but it was healthy competition, and it, and it worked
1: out well. So, 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 Robert, I was there – you know, I was a center girl boy. Robin was from Southport, so our we automatically had the south side going because Southport was the big, fancy suburban <laughs> school with the 7,000-seat with the 7, gym and in comes okay. in comes this wise guy from Southport, and he's trying to you know I'm I'm thinking I'm I'm going to be the hotshot here. And in comes this brash, full of himself uh, guy from Southport named Robin Miller. And uh, Robin's right, we it was a we did have a healthy competition, but we also both realized we had our feet in the door for an incredible career opportunity. And it was up to us to bust our butts to to make the best of it, and uh, through the help of Simon McBride and John Banch and Bob Collins, who kind of opened the door and uh, really paved the way for us. Uh, before we knew it, we were getting bylines in the paper. We were we were working, busting our butts on those nightly editions and watching the morning miracle come out every morning, know that we, knowing that we had a hand in it. It was an absolute incredible uh joyous experience
2: and the other thing is and bill will well back me up on this i mean bill went to college and got a degree I flunked out of ball state i mean you <laughs> couldn't be you couldn't be any luckier than i was and i was just at the right place at the right time but we had a guys we had a guy like Simon McBride that encouraged us and I don't know how Bill was, Bill was writing a little league. I mean, you know, you had to start at the bottom. So Bill wrote little league columns. And, and, and that was how he got started. And then he, he they branched out and started covering stuff. And I, I just went out to, I love the Speedway. So I went out to the Speedway and I just started doing features on my, and then I'd come in to do my night shift, but I'd, I'd bring, I'd interview a driver and I'd come into the story and, you know, turn it into them. And, and they'd, they passed around the room and and, and burst, bust out laughing. You think we're going to publish this in the Indianapolis Star? Are you serious? <laughs> Try again. But it was that was exactly what you needed. You needed to have that kind of, you know, I mean, it was meaningful. There were some tough guys in there, but it was the best. I mean, Bill took college classes, but we, I think we had one college class together at IEPUI, but I took one journalism class in the, in the two years I was in college. And there was no better education than what we got hands-on day in and day after start, and you could not replace that.
1: But, but what Robin had, and I, I know you want to get to questions, Robert. But no, 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 no. Keep going. But Robin, what Robin had, he, he when he walked in the door, he already had a Ph.D. in moxie. And, and so, <laughs> I mean, he would go out, and he, like he said, he'd go to the speedway. He started writing sidebars on the Indiana Pacers, just kind of on his own. And before, before we knew it, he's making road trips with the Pacers, and I'm still writing Little League stuff I'm going, what the hell happened here? Uh, <laughs> did, you really, did you really write stories about Little League teams? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, but, yeah, that was – I mean, that was a pecking order. I mean, you couldn't – you know, I mean, I Bill got to go cover Butler once and Indiana Central in football, and football, that was a big deal. We covered yeah. Indiana Central and Butler like a major beat. So that was your first step, you know. And then, you know, maybe they'd let you cover a high school game, maybe. But usually, you know, when you're starting out like we did, every Friday and Saturday night was just, we took every game in the, you know, we took so many games uh, on the phone and and with a summary and a box score, I mean, you busted your butt for five straight hours to put that thing out. But again, like Bill said, I mean, you can't, there's no college course that's going to prepare you for being under the gun, under deadline. Like we got to experience firsthand.
0: And Robin, was your experience as kind of a, a someone who who didn't go perhaps the traditional route? Did anyone else in the sports department at the Star at Polyam Enterprise Inc. or how, whatever it was called did did they have that same sort of background, or were you the only one who managed to do it that way?
2: Well, Bill can speak to this. Did David Benner. David Benner was kind of like. Did he
1: go all the way through college, Billy? Really? Well, he, he 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 went. He started off in Bloomington, so his his route was a little bit more traditional. Although David Benner got his he got his foot in the door, because he dropped out of IU and started as a copy boy, and then worked his way over into the sports department. And uh, again, a pretty miraculous rise. But before we renew it, he was he was covering the Pacers. So, he's your younger brother. Yeah my, my younger brother David Yeah, but see those opportunities existed then they don't exist now you got to have college yeah. you got to got to have a college degree you got to go through an internship program and so we were truly uh and very fortunately ahead of that uh, of that kind of uh curve
0: Robin did you to yeah, jo- we in get into the hot did, Robin it's did, the did the you get big big into sports journalism with the goal of covering Motorsports, the 500, or did that just kind of happen naturally?
2: No, I mean, I, you know, Bill probably did the same. I was a sports editor of my high school newspaper, and I and I liked, I loved sports, and I was a terrible student, and I couldn't concentrate on anything but sports, and you know, so, uh, you know, I stood, I stood for Jim Herbie's when I was 18 at the Speedway before I started working Star, and I followed him around the Midwest, and I loved racing, but you know, you can't ever. You, You know, when you're answering the score phones like Bill and I were, like we used to laugh. We used to say, "Why why would somebody care if who won the Brown Harvard basketball game? Who cares?" (laughs) Well, they were all gamblers. We, but we didn't know. I mean, we had no idea. So, I don't know that there was anything. uh, You know, Bill liked college sports a lot, and so that was kind of. But then, before he got the IU basketball beat, he was the Patriot beat writer, and that was probably some of the best experience he's ever going to get. But he always liked, you know, I think probably I'm speaking for him, a basketball was probably his favorite sport to, to write about stuff. And then he got to branch out and do the Olympics and the, and Pan Am games and stuff like that, which is probably the best writing he ever did. But I don't think anybody goes into a uh, – I mean, I, I don't know that we went in – we were just trying to make sure nobody got mad at us and threw us out. And we had – you know, there were times when there was just a couple of us in there because some of the boys went out. For dinner and never came back because they got plowed. <laughs> they were drunk. So Bill and I learned how to lay out the paper probably sooner than we should have too.
0: <laughs> Bill, did you was basketball? I know we talked about this in the podcast that I recorded with you a couple of years ago. Actually, I think Bill was my second podcast guest. But is basketball something you kind of focused on?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, because. Uh, when I finally became full-time after I left Bloomington in 1971, spent a short time in the Army, uh, then when I, I started off covering high school sports, and certainly high school basketball was, was the king then. And so I covered high school sports, primarily basketball, for, for three years after I got out of IU. And then in 1974, as Market Square Arena opened, uh, Dave Overpeck, who had been the Pacers beat writer, they Brought in a hockey game, hockey team, the, the WHA <laughs> and Indian, Indian, Indianapolis Racers. Overpeck loved hockey and wanted to cover hockey. Wayne Gretzky was on that team for a short time, so uh, Overpeck grad uh gravitated to the hockey team that opened up the Pacers' beat, and somehow uh, they anointed me. And um, and that's where that's kind of r- really where it all took off uh, for me. But Robin, Robert, Robin. Uh, again, by the force of his personality, the force of his incredible work ethic. He went and created Ray Marquette was the motorsports rider for the star at the time. But Robin, just because it, it, this incredible work ethic, he go, he go cover stories at the Speedway during the day and then come back and, and work the desk or, or the slot at the star that night. Uh, and, you know, like he said, he's stooge for Jim for, Hurtabees. Uh, he was a he, he stooge for a guy named Bill Finley, who was an IndyCar builder back in the time. And Robin just made his made his way into that beat, and eventually uh, really took it over and became the premier open-wheel motorsports rider uh, of the era, which continues. And explain what well, stooge funny. means. But then, to, to I gotta stooge. say, that pretty much stooge,
2: right that you just. You did errands and stuff, and and you know you weren't allowed to you weren't allowed to touch the school box. You just you yeah I had I had to take I had to take Jim's goggles onto his helmet, and I had to help push the car. After we got it started, and I had to help back, buckle his seat belts, and I I showed him the pit board, and but I wasn't allowed. You know I he he had to fire me because I ruined the paint job once when he just had 3 away and I was free help, and he fired me. So I mean it was pretty. I mean, it's pretty demoralizing when your hero fires you and you're not getting paid. But uh, the thing about Ray Marquette, Ray got me this job, my job as a star. And Ray really, he didn't like racing anymore. Than he liked, he loved IU basketball and football. Ray liked anything that kept him out of the office. Bless his heart. <laughs> and I don't, you know, you can't blame him. That that was kind of what you what You didn't want to be in the office then. Bill and I didn't care. We loved anything else. But Ray. I said, I'm going to start doing sprint car midget stories and, 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 and dirt car stories. So that's what really, you know, I started covering all these races nobody else wanted to mess with. So that just, you know, then finally I started doing a little USAC column every week. And that grew into like a 40-a-week column. So there was just, you know, like Bill said, the opportunities we had don't exist anymore. They don't, there are no motor, there's hardly any motorsports writers left in any newspaper in the country. The L.A. Times got rid of theirs. The Chicago Tribune doesn't have one. The New York Post doesn't have one. The Miami Herald got rid of it. So, you know, it's it, it's it's so hard. I just feel bad for all these kids to come out of journalism school. And you wonder what the hell are they going to do because the newspapers are, are dying on the vine and magazines aren't doing very well. And, you just you know, you just wonder how how, do they, how are they going to make it? But if you had – A.J. Foyt and I talk all the time. And he's always commiserating about how he was born in the perfect era. And I said, I think he probably was. AJ was born in 1935. But the racing he did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was the greatest era there was. It was also the greatest era for basketball. And I was just thinking about this before we started this thing. This is the weekend, fellows. of the high school. This is the week of the high school basketball tournament. You know what a big deal that used to be in Bill Benerai's life? I mean, you couldn't wait to get the drawings and the pairings and see who was playing who. We covered every game, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was unbelievable, and it was exciting. And now nobody even knows it exists.
0: Well, I was just going to ask you about eras because I was going to say to both of you, and and Bill, you go first, then you throw it over to Robin. You guys came into sports journalism and what could be called, in some ways, the golden era of many different sports at at more levels than just one. The Pacers are just coming on into their own. It certainly was the golden era of the Indianapolis 500. I can just remember what a huge – as I was born in 67. I can just remember what a gigantic deal it was, both because, as I mentioned before, my uncle uh, Bob Dorn uh, was intimately involved with it. His relationship with Johnny Rutherford, A.J. Foyt, the list goes on. But at the same time, great era in high school basketball here in the state – how much do you think your careers were helped just by the fact that you were coming into your own as sports was doing the same bill.
1: Yeah. There's no question about it, Robert, as the, you know, as the, the NBA and the ABA merged, we, we began to build sports facilities starting with market square arena. Then the Hoosier dome, we launched the amateur sports initiative with the formation of the sports corporation. We began to uh, attract NCAA events uh, the, the sports festival, the Pan Am games, uh, the, the Indianapolis Colts arriving in in 1984. And Robin and I were there for all of it. And uh, certainly the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, as you mentioned, uh, in the 70s and 80s and 90s until the, the split. I mean, it was it was king. It was just that was before NASCAR. Uh, got it's uh, began to uh, grow and kind of take away the the limelight from uh, from open wheel, but yeah, basketball. I mean, <laughs> I, I know I'm sounding like an old fart here, but single class basketball. You didn't have Lafayette Jeff playing Marion in the first round <laughs> of the sectional uh, like we did last night. So uh, yeah, it was absolutely uh, an incredible era, and there's no question that both of us benefited by being there uh, to to write about it all. Robin?
2: All right, we, exactly, we grew up in a perfect time. It was the perfect time to be a kid because uh, all we did was play sports. And Bill got, Bill got a good lesson because his big brother Larry took it to him on the basketball court. <laughs> so then Bill took it to David on the basketball court. They just passed <laughs> down who was going to abuse the other – but. To get a ticket to the Southport sectional and Center Grove played the Southport sectional, we had like 20 teams or some unbelievable number. Just to get a ticket to the Southport sectional was hard to do, even for us an afternoon session. And it was, you know, we had Louis Dampier and Billy Keller and the Venardos deals and stuff. I mean, we had all these amazing players. McGinnis Downing,
1: McGinnis Downing.
2: Yeah, but, but I mean, just it was so hard to uh, imagine. I mean, high school basketball was as big a deal as any Purdue or IU basketball game back then. or probably bigger. And the way we covered it the Star and the news and the Times, because we had competition. It was just it was the best. And then uh you know, race driver an Indy five hundred driver was a was a everybody knew who he was because Indy was king, like Bill said. And the Pacers, I mean the ABA was the first the ABA Pacers were the first team to captured the city's heart. I mean, they, you know, the Coliseum and the Pacers and the red, white, blue ball and Roger and Mel and Freddie and Neto, believe me, that was the turning point in this, in the city. And that's what led Mayor Luger to get MSA going. And, and, and it just, it snowballed from there. But I think everybody that was around to watch the Pacers go start in the ABA and then go to the NBA and MSA, you know, there was this, obviously a feeling of pride, but it was so cool. Because we went from, I mean, Bill and I used to take our lunch hour, Robert. We'd go out and take our lunch hour to Victory Field during the summer. And we'd sit on the top of the roof in a couple of folding chairs and eat a free hot dog. And it was the most laid. But, you know, we just, this is the early 70s. We didn't really have anything. And we had, the Indians were all we had. And we just, nobody really cared. I mean, they you know, they were a triple-A baseball team. And it was nice to nice night to go out for a game. But we didn't have any passion for any, any, any particular team in this city until the
0: patients came along. Uh, The only time I remember going to Bush stadium when I was a kid was when the reds would come here and play the Indians at Bush stadium, the big red machine. Oh yeah. And Oh yeah. What did, what did the two of you start with you again, bill? We'll just try to keep this in alphabetical order to make it easy. Bill, when, when I recorded that podcast with you a few years ago, you said something I'd never heard before, despite my time in the mayor's office and my involvement in government and politics and, growing up here my whole life, except for when I was in the army, you talked about how critical it was the decision by Luger. And then this was, this was seconded when uh, I did a podcast with Jim Morris, how important it was that mayor Richard Luger built market square arena downtown. How important was that?
1: Well, they were going to build it out by Lafayette square. Uh, that was the original thought or somewhere around the outer belt. And, uh, uh, Luger had the vision to say, "We need to do this. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it downtown, because we need to reverse the nightly migration to the suburbs." And uh, it was it was so inc- such incredible foresight, aided by people like Jim Morris, uh, to build MSA downtown. And you know, shortly thereafter, we began to uh, get some restaurants. You know, back in the day, and as Robin will tell you uh to go downtown for a restaurant there were I think St. Moritz, the St. Moritz, Saint Elmo, La Scala, and that was pretty that was pretty much it. And uh and so, the King, Col- King Cole. And the King Cole. That's right. And, and but yeah, that was that, that was it. that was it. And um, so to have the foresight again to build Market Square Arena. You know, then that led to NCAA events, the sports corp took off. Uh, then we built the Hoosier Dome where we built the Hoosier Dome and uh, away it went. Robin Robin. Well,
2: Bill hit the nail on the head. Uh, the book that Neto and Dick Tinkerman and I did about the Pacers and how it started, there's a there's a wonderful chapter in there and Luger and, 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 and Luger was great. He'd call me back and, and, and you know, before he passed on, he was he was still very sharp. And and L.S. Airs had given, the, they were going to give the city all this free land for like a dollar. It's, it's a long story, but it, it was like, but you're going to have to build it out in the suburbs, like Bill said, out like the Colts Complex is. And, and that wasn't, you know, so the Marriott people came in and they were looking at coming to Indianapolis for the first time. Well, they didn't want to go out to the suburbs. They wanted to be closer to downtown and, Dick Tinkham, who probably doesn't get nearly enough credit for holding this whole thing together, I mean, he was pretty much the Pacers' unofficial general manager and legal counsel. He was getting ready to tell the guys, the the board of directors on the Pacers, well, you're right, we can't afford a new arena, so we're stuck in the Coliseum. And about that time, he got a call, and, and Luger said, hey, there's a grant out there for like $16 million we can get, and we can build this. MSA for fifteen million dollars. We'll build it right in the heart of downtown. marriott to move in, and it just it took off. And then you got you got to give Bill Hudnett credit. He builds a football stadium. We don't have a football team. That people are like, this guy's an idiot. He's going to cost this city all this money. And lo and behold, we get the Colts. And and then, but like Bill said, we go to the St. Moritz for dinner. We never couldn't afford St. Elmo's and the Star salary or or the King Cole. But then then the Colts get here and suddenly you start getting nightclubs and bars and restaurants and, and re- just, there's a wonderful skyline picture, Robert, in 1965, 1975, 1985. And you can't, it doesn't even look like the same city. And it's all, and you people can say whatever they want about pro sports. And I know we're all on their, we get on their back a lot because they're so greedy sometimes, but those, the Pacers and the Colts turned this city around period. And well, there's look, no disputing it.
0: And we've, we've addressed that in other, in other podcasts and and Bill's been as eloquent as anyone in in defending it and saying, look, there simply is no comparison to this city before pro sports took off as opposed to after. But Bill, let me ask you, you were probably sitting at your desk and then Robin, I would like you to answer when Bill's finished, please. Or where were you, Bill, when someone said, uh, so the Baltimore Colts are moving to Indianapolis. Can you cover this story? Bill,
1: I remember exactly where I was. I was in Seattle uh, covering the final four and I got a call uh, from, I'm trying to remember who called and told me that uh, the Colts were, were going to move. I couldn't cover it. Cause I was, Oh, it was, I do remember. It was Pat McKee who covered yep. girls basketball for us for a long time. And he was the one that called me in Seattle and said, this is, it's, it's the, Vans are leaving, leaving Baltimore, and they're coming to Indianapolis. And but I was again, I could not actually help cover that thing because I was in Seattle covering um, a, a Final Four. But I just knew, and you, you know the other thing. And I I don't know whether we've discussed this, the serendipity of it all uh, to put Colts blue seats in the in the Hoosier Dome. And when Robert <laughs> Ursay walked in and went, God, you guys built the stadium for me and my team. I mean, that was and that was just just mere good fortune. So, but anyway, that's where I was. I was in Seattle. Robin, I was
2: at the Long Beach Grand Prix covering the Indy Car race, and uh, I can't. I don't know. I don't even sure I got a call. I just remember uh, maybe hearing about it and then calling John Banch and or Bob Collins you're just saying, is it true? And they're like, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. And, and then, and then John was, that was, uh, he loved pro football. And so he didn't want, he got, he, he didn't want to be, he got, he didn't want to be the assistant sports editor anymore. Or he just wanted to be a pro football writer. And that's what he became for the next 20 years. But it was Pat McKee did most of the, all the stories early on. He was the one guy that was there that, that wrote all the stories. And Pat was, you know, he covered uh, high school sports, but, I'm not sure. Even in the early stages, it was we were kind of giddy that we're. I'm not sure it really dawned on us what a big deal it was. I I mean, uh, we we knew it was. You know, I just don't know. I'm not sure we quite grasped the fact that this whole thing was going to change.
0: But you must have had friends, you know, sports writers from other cities like a Denver or Cincinnati or Chicago who knew what a big deal it was. Did you reach out to them or? have some sort of conversation with people from other cities and go like, how is this going to change our sports department and how we cover sports and how it's going to change our city? Bill, did you remember anything a conversation like that happening?
1: Well, we certainly, again, we, we certainly realized there was a, a huge deal, the NFL, I mean, it was the NFL and, uh, the Pacers at the time were, had gone, undergone their own struggles. Uh, we had nearly lost the Pacers. And in fact, uh, and I, this is a, Again, another one of those incredibly good fortunes that had the Simon brothers not stepped in to rescue the Pacers because they were going to go to California, most likely uh, somewhere in, near LA or, or Sacramento. But had the Simon brothers not stepped in to save the Pacers and kept them viable, then I don't think there's any way we get the Indianapolis Colts. So the construction of Market Square Arena to save the, to get the Pacers from downtown from the Coliseum to downtown, the move for the Simons to save the Pacers, and then the, again, the incredible foresight to build a, build a football stadium without a team to play in it, leading to the arrival of the Colts. I mean, we all certainly recognize that our sports world in Indianapolis had changed forever.
0: Robin?
2: Yeah, well, let's, all I can tell you is, is that we – we were known for the Indy 500 and and our high school basketball tournament. Those are the two things we were known for, but we weren't known. And then the Pacers, when the ABA started, then the Pacers put us on the map as far as a lot, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And then the pro football team, you know, the Colts come along and I mean, they're not very good when they start, but it's still a pro football team. And I moved downtown in 1983 it was, you know, sadly, it's kind of like it is right now. A lot of empty buildings, nobody downtown, no traffic. And then to watch this whole metamorphosis of how this city exploded was just, man, it made you you proud. But back to Bill's point, I remember going to the press conference when the Simon brothers took over the team and I was sitting in the back with Ray Compton, who was a new sports writer who ended up working for the Pacers. And, And we were just like, if it wasn't for these two guys, there would be no pro basketball team here. And I and Bill's right. I don't think the Colts would have followed either. We'd have been back to the 500 and the high school basketball journey and Bob Knight and IU basketball probably and Gene Cady and Purdue. But it was – everything just worked out. But the Simons probably don't – you know, we did – one of the chapters of the book we wrote on the Pacers, I remember talking to uh, Herb about – uh, he said, he called me and he says, hey, you're not going to make a big deal out of how much this franchise is worth, are you? And I said, well, yeah, I'm going to make a big deal out of it, but it's gone from whatever you paid for it to almost worth a billion dollars. He goes, well, you'll put there how many any millions we spent keeping it going? I said, sure. But uh, that's just, people don't realize how much money the Simon spent to keep. How many times, Bill, and I know that we went to the market square and the curtain was halfway down because there was nobody there.
0: Yeah, and at a time in the late 70s, really before the Magic Johnson-Larry Bird era really took off, the NBA was an absolute disaster.
1: No, well, I mean, remember, remember the Pacers went, we only had two years of Market Square Arena in the ABA, and then they were absorbed into the NBA, one of the four teams to do so. That put a significant financial burden on the ownership group at the time, to the point where they had to have the telethon. Thank you know, God bless Slick and Nancy uh, Leonard for having uh, <laughs> the telethon. or the, We might have lost the Pacers then. And then again for the Simons to step forward, uh, building the Hoosier Dome. The Hoosier Dome not only – attract, and I always remind people of this. The Hoosier Dome not only attracted the Colts, but it paved the way for our relationship with the NCAA because as the NCAA tournament grew and they needed to go into Dome Stadiums for the Final Four – there we were with a dome stadium attached to a convention center, perfectly placed uh, downtown. We we have a, a world-class auditorium, a world-class track and field stadium. We attract all these NCAA events. We build up the NCAA relationships to the point where they decide in, in 1997 that they're going to leave Overland Park, Kansas, and Indianapolis ends up being the destination. So, And that's had a magnificent impact including the one that we're going to experience this month where we have the entire uh, March Madness. It's just its just one of the amazing, amazing success stories of any city uh, ever. And, again, Robin and I were fortunate to, to be there and, and be part of it.
0: Robin? And don't, Robin.
1: and don't forget this. There was a time,
2: I mean, I remember doing a column and getting to know the guy that ran the NFL Combine. <laughs> and it, in those days, when the NFL combine came to Indianapolis, nobody it wasn't televised. The media, we, were, we weren't even allowed to go and watch people run the 40 yard. You know, we were, we had to wait, the, we had to wait the holiday in and maybe get a, you know, talk to Peyton or whoever was the hot star that year, but they didn't care if the media covered. Well, what did that involve? in? that involved into rave reviews from everybody in the NFL. Oh my God, this is the greatest site for, for this thing because everything is so close together you can you don't even have to walk outside you can go from your hotel to the football stadium to the restaurant of your choice and as bill will tell you then the next the next domino to fall was the NCAA basketball tournament when we hosted that it was the same response people just were like blown away Like god we gotta have this here every year this is perfect so I mean, there were a lot of people that are responsible for it, and a lot of people deserve the credit. But it, it, it's just—it's uh, amazing to think what we were in 1968 and what and what we evolved through the next 30 years. It's—it's a phenomenal story.
0: Robin, if I would have told you on the night of the Pacers telethon, and I've already asked this question of Bill, so I'm going to ask you: If I had told you on the night of the Pacers telethon, that in February 2012, the city of Indianapolis would completely redefine what it meant to be a Super Bowl host city, you would have said?
2: Well, I would have have probably said, you know, I mean, nobody's going to bring a football team here. I never thought anybody would bring a football team or a baseball team here because of the pressure from the other big cities like St. Louis and Chicago and Cleveland and everybody that didn't want, you know, and, and when we had our hockey team, and we had Wayne Gretzky for a few, for a couple months, you know, could we have become a big-time hockey city? Well, I mean, if we keep Wayne Gretzky, I'm pretty sure we would have been. But, you know, I think we kind of had, it was kind of a knock. But, eh, Indianapolis is still AAA city, you know, the ABA. They're, you know, they're okay. They get by in the NBA, but I'm not sure what. And then the Super Bowl was just another feather in the cap of, of the city because it was so well run and it was so organized and it was i mean these people love the fact that they don't have to go they can walk everywhere and it, obviously we had great weather that year the super bowl but people can walk everywhere to whether to, to get to the events and then and the nfl experience they had for all the kids and stuff i mean it was uh <laughs> it was something that i don't think anybody can envision
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests are Hall of Famer Robin Miller and I guess two-time Hall of Famer, Bill Benner. Uh, Robin, let me ask you a question. I've wanted you to ask this question since you agreed to come on the podcast. So who has the worst temper, Bob Knight or A.J. Foyt? Well, uh, you know, I mean, it, it
2: probably Bob Knight. I mean, Bill was closer to Bob. Knight. He didn't want to be. Bill was closer to Bob Knight than I was. I mean, he despised me, but I always made it a point to ask him one question at every press conference, just so he'd have to look at me. But <laughs> I don't know. But you gotta remember, Bob Knight was. He was, you know, he was dominating eighteen-year-old kids, and they were scared to death. And you know, you hear all the stories now. I mean, everybody, you know, when he came back to Assembly Hall and all the guys that showed up. I mean, they all kind of appreciated. Foy was you know, AJ was fine if you just, you know, people would go up to him after the engine broke or the car blew up or something happened and, and, and stick him out. AJ worked on his own cars and his engines, and he was so intense at the racetrack. He just didn't, you know, he didn't, there was no PR people then, and he didn't, he, he was there to race and to win. So he was pretty, I mean, he was, he was tri- but I always got along with him because I always waited half hour or 45 minutes before I'd go find him after something good or bad happened and you know he was always good about calling me back and I think it's because I raced myself and I worked on IndyCar teams, and he knew how 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 entrenched I was into racing but I think Knight Bill can answer this better than I can but Knight had a circle of writers that he kind of you know, that he kind of would feed stuff to and that were on his. And I think they probably stayed that way uh, most of the time. But, uh, you know, he was friendly to Bill for a while and then friendly to John Vance for a while. And then he'd turn on him for no reason whatsoever. It's just, he, Lou Henson said it best. He was a consummate bully and he wanted to bully. It. And the guy was a great basketball coach, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he, he, there's no argument, there's no, there's no statement that he can, he's one of the great basketball coaches of all time. But uh, he was a basketball coach. He wasn't a general. He didn't win a war. You know, we were playing, these are kids playing basketball. And I think some of the things he did to people, whether it was Neil Reed or whoever it was, you know, I mean, to me, it was uncalled for. And the fact that you know, to show how tough you were, you had to act like that with these kids. I don't know. It, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it's a toss up to you know, who had the toughest temper. When, and AJ, in his heyday in the 70s, when he was winning all these races and stuff, I mean, he, he, he could fly off the handle pretty quick. But, should he he's such a pussycat now. The last, all these people have come along in the last 20 years. God, AJ, what a great guy. I mean, he, he's, a he's a, he's a He's the nicest, he's the nicest guy. Well, he is, and and he's really, I mean, he's a completely, I mean, he's a different person because he's, he's died about 10 times and come back from the dead, but he, he, you know, I mean, we, he calls me once a week to see how I'm feeling or I'll call him and see how he's feeling. And, you know, it's, he's just, uh, he's an American treasure and I realize everybody doesn't think like him, but he did everything he wanted to do in his life and he did it his way. Every day, he didn't listen to anybody else. And God, there's just no, there's very few people like that left. I'm sure Knight does the same. They're very close. I think personality-wise, they're probably uh, alike. except I think Floyd has more friends. I think AJ was more willing. I don't know. He just didn't seem to. You didn't have to be in this inner circle to be. I mean, Floyd had friends everywhere. So, what do you think, Billy? Did do you think Knight? Uh, who's got the biggest temper?
1: Well, Robin, I just want to—I I just want to correct the record because you did two things. Uh, I want to point out that not only did you become a Hall of Fame motorsports rider, uh, but you were not not in the Hall of Fame as a driver. This guy—he drove a Formula Ford, and then he drove his own midget car. And Robert, at my wedding, Robin was best man, and he showed up for the rehearsal, towing his midget car behind him because he'd just come from. Someplace in Illinois. So that's Southside uh,
0: class right there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, yeah. but no, Robin, now just be quiet. So, but I, I, you know, he, I was in the slot at the Indianapolis Star the night that uh, AJ tried to deck him at the Motor Speedway. And Robin wrote a very strongly worded column about AJ that uh, he might have been eh, maybe pushing the rules limits on occasion. And so it wasn't always that Robin and A.J. Uh, had this wonderful relationship.
0: I, I, rem- I remember watching the A.J. Foyt Sports Century on ESPN, and I think Robin's on there talking about uh, Foyt spraying a little nitro into his car. Is that right, Robin? <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. I mean, A.J., was, you know, he's funny now because I did a 45-minute interview with him for NBC last year, and uh, near the end of it, I said, okay, I said, I want the truth. Who's the best cheater? You or Smokey Eunuch. And, man, he looked he – he had to think for 10 seconds before he – oh, I guess Smokey was pretty good. Um, <laughs> he goes, I can, hold my, I can hold my own with him. But that was the only time point I ever tangled. And, and you know, it was because of one, par- one little sentence in the story in the star, and he smacked me in the back of the head. And our Bill and I have a mutual friend, Craig McKee, who's a judge in Terre Haute and works at the sports department. And he tried to tell Bob Collins and John Vance I don't think we should run this column from Robin because they're going to be able to prove that he, he wrote just in anger, and AJ is going to come back and sue us, and that's exactly what happened. And the Star Hat we had to apologize to AJ and pay his legal fees. And and a couple a few years ago, Boyd was being honored at the Speedway, and there's about 400 people in the press room, and somebody said, AJ, uh, how have you? You know, there's so much litigation in sports nowadays. Have you ever had any? A chance to have you ever had lawsuits and stuff, and he grabs the mic and he says, "Yep." He says, "Sports Illustrated." He says, "I ran them out of business. About ran them out of business. I kicked their ass for six figures." And he said "That asshole sitting in the back of the room there, typing, Robin Miller. I beat him too." And everybody starts, everybody starts laughing, and, and I'm laughing because he did. He kicked their butt. And and,
0: uh, and if you're not and, if you're not familiar with that era. Robin, let me just say this. Explain just a little bit. How gigantic of a sports figure was AJ Foyt in his prime?
2: Well, cover Sports Illustrated probably five or six times, and today he's still. This is what's wrong with open wheel racing. Mario, AJ, Parnelli, the Unser brothers, Johnny Rutherford—they're all Gordon Johncock. They're all over. They're all in their eighties. They're all still alive. And other than Uncle Bobby, most of them are in pretty good shape. They are still the heroes of racing for Americans. They don't know who Scott Dixon is or Will Power. They don't know what they look like. They don't care. They still idolize these guys because they were the stars in the most violent era of racing. And they were the gladiators of the day. And, you know, I take Parnelli. I take Parnelli to lunch every Christmas Eve. I got to see my sister and my nieces. And we go to the same place every christmas eve for lunch for lunch and parnellia gets stopped two or three times or they come up to his table and he would go first of all how do they know who i am and secondly why would they want my autograph i'm an old man i said rufus you don't understand the impact you had on people's lives and that's what aj when aj goes to a race robert he's like he'll if he goes to Elkhart lake there's a line a mile long to get his autograph and then there's all the other drivers and there's one or two people there, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, when those guys are all gone, I don't know what, I mean, to me, you know, you pick up the phone and call Mario and he gives you the greatest quotes in the world because he can put everything in. He's so eloquent and he's so classy and uncle Bobby's one of the great quotes of all time. And Rutherford's got a great memory. And you know, you just, When these guys are gone, although I told Foyt the other day, he's going to live to be 104 because he's too mean and he's too tough to ever die. he's he's the toughest man I've ever met, but you know, when they're gone, racing is so much history and Indianapolis is all about history. And, uh, they just, they're still heroes today. That's why a lot of them love to come back during May. I kid Tom Neva. I said, hell, nobody knows who you are in the world except during may in indianapolis people actually say hey that's tom sneva I said, that's why you come back here
0: <laughs> well in august i had the absolute honor of interviewing johnny rutherford for the leaders and legends podcast and the love affair he still has with the city of indianapolis and we have with him racing fans was something that really touched him when when i was asking him about it that indianapolis is special robin you've traveled the the country, I'm assuming the world, covering motorsports racing. How special is Indianapolis to racing fans and race drivers from around the world?
2: Not nearly what it was. Uh, you know, you could come from a dusty dirt track like the Devil's Bowl, like John Rutherford did, or AJ coming up through midgets, or Parnelli going through jalopies at Ascot Park, or Jim Herdovich running sprint cars all over the Midwest and the and the East Coast, and and you, in Indianapolis, if you made it at Indy, uh, you know, USAC was on top of the world. So you, the Indy 500 was the pinnacle. It was Sports Illustrated covered, Sports Illustrated covered qualifying. I mean, there was a, there were two covers every May, the pole sitter usually and the race winner and the Sports Illustrated and every newspaper sent somebody to cover the Indy 500. Well, now what do we got, Billy? Three, three or four papers maybe that might cover the race. And the thing is, it's not that the driver's. Dario Franchini fell in love with it. He didn't want anything to do with it, but, but he got he got so immersed in the history of it. And he was a big Jim Clark fan, but then when he saw what it meant and, and and the tradition and I mean, he real Dario was probably the you know he fell for it like he he's got a lot of old school bones in him and he really it really affected him. I mean, he loves the Indy Five Hundred, but like you know, you said Will Power had one of the greatest reactions when he won i mean he was so excited to win that race same with montoya uh they didn't grow up wanting to be indy 500 drivers in the 50s 60s and 70s that's all anybody wanted to be and if you listen to ricky rudd or rusty wallace or daryl waltrip they didn't want to be nascar you know indy was all that counted i mean that jimmy johnson's hero was rick mears for god's sake they wanted to be indy 500 drivers and that's what a big deal it was. It could it could make you or break you. And if you had success there, you could probably uh, you could probably have a great career. And I think the fans are dying off. I mean, I'm 71, and I go to a of the show, and they're all my age. And you know, I mean, Bill's gonna Bill's daughter is coming to the race this year. That's good. That's the, that's a youth movement in the right direction.
0: And my son is 20 and he loves it. He's been to multiple races and goes to out to the the track and you know uh, Mark Miles takes care of him when he when he has to go out there but there is a younger group of people who I think have who who have grabbed onto the 500 as it seems to be on an upswing again. Is that fair to say or am I overplaying it?
2: Oh, well, maybe well, think about this. The Friday before qualifying, there used to be 40,000 people at practice. And on qualifying in the 60s and 70s, there'd be 200,000 people on pole day. I mean, nobody goes to practice anymore. They just stream it at home. Nobody goes to qualifying because they can watch it on TV. Uh, Thankfully, they still come to Carb Day and they still come to Race Day. But the Speedway has – they only have two days in May to make money. Carb Day and Race Day, that's it. They don't make money any other day. So it's not nearly – what it used to be and that we don't have every tv station doing a nightly special we don't have three newspapers doing special sections and we don't have there's just not that interest anymore and you know kids nowadays they like e-racing like they like their or they like uh you know they they love to have that kind of uh they get to race on their computer like they're racing a car well that's cool but that's not racing i mean what's what's the, the, what's the danger element? You're going to spill your coke on your computer? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't get it. I, I understand. I do not get that. But that's just the way it is. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I'm happy. I made it seventy-one, and I'm really happy that I grew up when I did.
0: Bill, you got to cover so many great events. It's Olympics. It's Final Four. Super Bowls. The list goes on and on. But I want to turn that, turn this around just a little bit. When I've, I don't know how many times we've had lunch, dozens and dozens, and other conversations, the look on your face of, I think, real sadness when you mention the institution of class basketball. How much do you miss single-class Indiana high school basketball?
1: Well... (laughs) You know, I understand the realities, and I understand that uh, multi class came in in 1997. So the kids today they didn't grow they didn't grow up with it. I grew up with it. I grew up with Milan. I grew up with Oscar and Addicts. I grew up with McGinnis and Downing. I grew up with Argus and Silver Creek and Springs Valley and some of the little schools that made it through to the final four. I saw Center Grove knock off Richmond in this in the Summer State when David Benner was student manager in 1972. <laughs> so I I always appreciated the fact that uh what was really important at Center Grove was winning the sectional. It, it, winning at Franklin, beating Whiteland or Greenwood. It, it, it was and now with consolidation and with charter schools and how everything has changed. I understand the culture's changed, but, uh, and and you know what? I had the opportunity uh, to, when I was working with the Pacers, to certainly be on hand for the, the the multi-class boys and girls championships. And the the 1A champs have the same unbridled joy uh, of hoisting a trophy and having a ribbon hung around their neck as the 4A champs. And as the single class champs did back in the day, but will I ever get over it? No. Will it be the last paragraph in my uh, in my obituary? Yes. Uh, so, I, we should so. say that we should say
0: that Bill Benner ends almost every single one of his Facebook posts with "Get off my lawn." <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. So, but I, I appreciate again. I appreciate that you know the world has changed. And uh, uh, like Robin talks about, you know, the media, and uh, it's just a different world. So,
0: Robin, which was a worse decision: class basketball <laughs> or the IRL cart split?
2: Well, they happened at the same time, and they're they it was it's a toss up. They're they're equally. I mean, it killed the attendance for high school basketball. It killed the attendance for open wheel racing and it killed the interest in both of them. And has IndyCar made a little bit of a comeback? Yeah, it, you know, it, there's still a few places like Road America and Mid-Ohio, Long Beach that draw good crowds, but nobody goes to Old Wolf anymore. Nobody cares. Nobody comes to IndyCar practice or qualifying. High school basketball tournament. Did you see any of the highlights last night? Did you see the pathetic crowds at these games? I mean, no, they just don't. People just don't care like they used to. Now I'm not saying that obviously the parents do, and the kids work hard, and the girls practice hard just like the guys do. And I get it. And like Bill said, you can't, you can't, you can't write or bottle the excitement. If Center Grove won a game in the Southport sectional against somebody that was a ranked team or some big school that they weren't supposed to be on the same floor with, that was like winning the sectional just for so many teams i mean you know southport was expected to do well how we had four thousand students and you know, that was our gym but all those little schools the franklin centrals and places like that and the and all these it was their whole i mean it's what you live for you live for the high school the, the county attorney and the city attorney and the, and the sectionals that was the biggest deal there was and i'm so glad that i got to see ron bonham and jimmy rail and Louis dampier and george and Steve and, and Steve Alford and former C-Plan, I think Bill covered that game when he, he played for, when he, he lit up Broad Ripple and Bill and I were lectured by the Broaddryffle coach about what we did or didn't know about basketball, I remember that but it was just it was the kind of time it couldn't have been the worst the timing couldn't have been worse I mean, let's kill the high school basketball attorney at the same time we do the Indy 500 and open wheel race great ideas, fellas, you know and, you know, it's just, uh, <laughs> I lost, I lost all my jobs because I refused to get off Tony George's butt. And, you know, 10 or 15 years later, everybody said, well, you were right. No kidding. What did you take any genius to <laughs> tell you that I was white? Right? But the thing that's sad is, is that Tony really loved Indianapolis out for the in the 8500. He didn't do it to kill it. He just didn't have very good advice. That's my, uh, that's,
0: Status part. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with Hall of Famers Bill Benner and Robin Miller. Uh, Bill, Robin mentioned a few minutes ago about your your relationship with Coach Knight. Uh, you had a recent article uh, that discussed your induction to the Basketball Writers Hall of Fame, and you talk about what a great coach Knight was. If you could choose, given your incredible knowledge and love of college basketball history, if you could choose one coach to coach your team, would you choose Knight, or would you choose someone else?
1: No, I I would I would choose Knight. Um, I I would the the, the all time example of Bob Knight, well there are several of them, uh, eighty four uh, uh, and, and beating the Jordan team in North Carolina with the incredible talent they had, uh, but the eighty seven Final Four when they when <laughs> when they beat UNLV on 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 Saturday and then came back and beat Syracuse on for the championship, uh, Indiana. God bless Steve Alford and, and Daryl Thomas and Key Smart and all those guys, but they didn't belong on the floor with UNLV, and Indiana went out. Indiana went out and beat them at their own game. Uh, they they picked up the tempo and they absolutely they just they didn't belong there and they just kicked kicked their butt. I saw Indiana beat Maryland at Dayton, Ohio, in the first round. It was another example. This was I think 81 on the route yeah. of the championship. It was. They had they had no they had no business being on the floor with that team, and they beat him by thirty. Uh, so and
0: they had Buck Williams and um,
1: Albert King. That's right, yeah. Uh, so I've always said, if I had to choose one coach to win get win one game, especially if they had lesser talent, it would have been Bob Knight. He was a genius.
0: Robin, let me ask you another question. Uh, it was several years ago at the end of the twentieth century, where AJ Foyt and Mario and Dreddy were named co-drivers of the century. If you had to choose one driver to win a race on an oval, let's not just say Indianapolis 500, but a race on an oval, whom would you choose?
2: I'd choose ACI on the ovals and Mario on the road course because they're they're coupled. They're one and 1A. One but let me give you a little background. When the Associated Press named them the co-drivers of the century, course i had to write a story but i called mario up and he said well he goes it's uh what can i say he said it's it's an honor to be named in the same breath with a.j Foyt and he was the yardstick when i started racing and he still is and i uh, you know to, if you want to if you if you finish a race and he was behind you then you realize that you had accomplished something really special so i called Floyd up and of course what he said was well, bullshit. He said, let's have a runoff. There ain't no ties. He said, let's just decide it right now. I said, well, what do you suggest you're going to? I said, as fat as you are, the only thing you can race is a school bus. <laughs> and he said, because I'm pretty brave 2,000 miles away. And he said, yeah, you're right. I need to lose about 10 or 15 pounds. I said, 10 or 15 pounds? <laughs> and, you know, but he knows they have such a great respect for each other. And no matter how AJ acts, like Mario doesn't really count or not really friends, that, that's a crock because they're buddies. I mean, uh, AJ called Mario on his birthday Sunday. Mario turned 81. And they're just, uh, there were two guys along with Parnelli and Dan Gurney that they were the Mount, those are the four Mount Rushmore's uh, of my lifetime. And they could drive anything, anywhere, under any conditions, and there's no, they don't make They don't make drivers like that anymore. I mean, they, I'm not saying Scott Dixon and Will Power, you know, Colton Herder, guys like that. I'm not saying they couldn't do it. Uh, I'm not saying they couldn't run the dirt and they couldn't run stock cars and they couldn't run formula one. They're just never going to get the opportunity. And those guys not only got the opportunity when they ran with it, they just, they won and, and they, they did things that people just, you know, no one could believe they could they could show up and win a race, whether it was a Trans Am race, a NASCAR race, a Formula One race, Can-Am, IndyCar. It didn't make any difference. I mean, that's how special those four guys were.
0: There's an excellent article in Sports Illustrated that was written, oh gosh, 25 or plus years ago now, and it's called Twilight of a Titan. And I think William Knack wrote it about AJ. Bill Ford. Knack
2: wrote it. Yeah, it was William Knack because mm-hmm. I, I spent about four days with him
0: brilliant article about AJ Foyt. Uh, we end all Leaders and Legends podcasts with the same five questions. However, these five questions are different, so we'll go in alphabetical order with the answers. Bill Benner and Robin Miller. Bill, you answer first, then Robin take over. Question number one: fav- Favorite sports moment you covered, Bill? Oh,
1: jeez! Um... We're starting off easy. Uh, wow. Eight point and eight point nine seconds. Reggie Miller, Madison Square Garden. Robin. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that, 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 I got mine to tie, uh, Roger, no ties. Brown, Roger Brown scoring 53 points in the Anaheim convention center with, uh, when the Pacers, uh, I think it was the next, I'm not sure. it was. The, I don't think it was the title game. It was the game before they won their first title. Uh, and and Bill Sharman. I think Jerry West might have been there. Bill Sharman was the coach, and I think after the game, Jerry West said uh, that's one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. And, of course, the 1982 Indy 500 with John Cock and Mears, the most exciting Indy
0: 500 ever. I was just going to ask you that question because that was my first 500 was 1982. The end of that race is absolutely brilliant. Uh, second question, Bill, if you could witness any sporting event in history, which would you choose?
1: Ollie Frazier. First? How about, Yeah, the first one, the Thriller and Manila.
0: That's the third one. The first one you're talking about in Madison Square Garden, 1970. No, I'm, I'm, the,
1: the one I'm talking about would be the Thrilla in Manila. Robin.
2: Oh God. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know. I think this is something we we didn't get to do, but that we would get to cover.
0: Correct. Any, it could be Jesse Owens in Berlin. Any sporting event.
1: Hmm. My, uh, land, My land
0: Myland
2: Muncie Central. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Myland Muncie Central would have been pretty cool to cover. That's a good one. Um probably uh I I, I don't know. I, I, I think um
1: man, I don't
2: know. Buki Vuki everybody had release drivers in fifty three and one guy died of heat frustration. He drove the whole race by himself in the last field. I mean, that would have been a pretty, that would have been a pretty amazing event to cover because it was so hot. He was so dominant.
0: Number three, Bill, if you could interview any sports figure in history, whom would you choose?
1: I've already done it. John
0: Wooden. How about that? Robin?
1: Well, uh,
2: (laughs) <laughs> I'd say Mickey Mantle because, okay, I'd say Mickey Mantle sober because <laughs> the one time that I got to interview Mickey Mantle, uh, they opened a Mickey Mantle menswear store on the east side of Indianapolis in 1970. And, uh, I begged Simon Bride and John Vance, you gotta let me go interview Mickey Mantle. I said, are you stupid. We're not going to let you interview Mickey Mantle. He wouldn't talk to some little ant like you anyway. And then, they, and then I and then I figured out they were messing with me, so they finally sent me out there, and the only other guy out there was Chuck Marlowe, and he goes, you mind if I talk to him first? I said, no, that's okay. Well, Mick showed up a half hour late, and it took two guys to get him out of the car, and he was gas. He could not put a sentence together, went to the restroom, threw up, came out, they let him back out to the car, and they apologized, and I went back and wrote some glowing tribute to him and made up a couple quotes. But I think as Male got older and he got not I'm not sure wiser, but he came around a little bit as to uh, what his lot in life was. He might have if he'd have been on a team would I think it would he would have been a pretty interesting interview.
0: Question number four, Bill Benner, who is your choice as the greatest Hoosier sports icon? I-
1: Oh man! Well, you know what? Um, you can have a tie. So uh, you know, s- slick Slick Leonard would be right there at the top. National, cha- you know, national champion at uh, hit the winning free throws. Indiana beats Kansas. Um, coached the Pacers to championships. Resurrected the Pacers at the telethon. Went on to become radio icon. And as Robin proclaimed about AJ. I would proclaim equally about Slick, the toughest SOB I've ever run across. (laughs) So um, I think I I might have to put Slick at the top of my list.
0: Now, Bill, Slick Leonard's coming on my podcast. Do you want to co-host? I would love to. All right. We'll make that happen. (laughs) We'll make that happen. Robin, greatest Hoosier sports icon.
1: Well,
2: Oscar Robertson and Slick. And Larry Bird. I mean, they're, I have to cop out, but those three guys, <laughs> pretty, you know, well, I don't know how you separate them. I really don't. I mean, people, I hear all these guys talking about triple doubles in the NBA. Oscar averaged a triple double for God's sake. I mean, people have no idea. Today's basketball, they have no idea how great Oscar Robertson really
0: was. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was asked about the, the, the best players he ever faced and he said, quote, Oscar was scary, and Larry Bird was the smartest player I ever played against. So you're in good company there, Robin. Last question, Bill. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Robin. Go ahead. No,
2: I'm just saying, and Slick, it speaks for himself. I mean, he, we need to have a statue of Slick out in front of the banker's wife because he, he is the Pacers.
0: That's a great point. Last question. Bill Benner, all-time favorite sports journalist who isn't on this podcast.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> Frank DeFord uh, was brilliant in the day. I mean, brilliant. Bob Ryan at the Boston Globe, uh, one of my all-time favorites, another brilliant writer. But, again, I'm using multiple names. I'm going to go back to Jim Murray, L.A. Times.
0: Robin?
2: Hands down, Jim Murray. He can make you, he can pick up the best of Murray and just pick, it's like reading Ball 4, just start reading on any page and you're going to be laughing and smiling. He was, he was unbelievable. He was so far ahead of everybody else and the guys Bill mentioned were good, uh, but nobody could touch Jim Murray. I mean, Bob Collins was a great writer, a great columnist, but there was nobody like Jim Murray. Never has been and probably never will be.
0: And Robin, let me ask you a quick uh, follow-up on that before we end the podcast. Jim Murray famously, and correct me if I'm overstating this, famously somewhat turned on the Indianapolis 500 with his famous quote, gentlemen, start your coffins. I think was that after the 73 race that was so deadly? 74. Was it 74?
1: No,
2: 64. Oh, 64. Sacks McDonald
0: 64. Why did he turn on the 500? Did you ever have a chance to talk to him about it?
2: Well, he, he, he didn't really turn on it. He just, that was just his, I mean, everybody came down on him. He, Jim loved racing. He came back every year. He he married an Indianapolis girl, uh, Linda Ahern and, uh, he went to Long Beach every year. I mean, that was a bad rap. He never, he loved Racing and became really good friends with Mario and the Uncers. AJ even liked him. And it was just, you know, uh, that was just—it was a line that he used for a deadly race that killed two drivers, and no one had seen that. You know, the race had never been stopped for an accident before, so he was just responding to what he'd seen. But he didn't have anything against racing, and and he he really liked Indy 500. I remember when he came back in '96, and he hadn't been to the race in a few years, and he walks around Gasoline Alley, goes, you know, he couldn't see, goes down, sits in the press room, gets his little typewriter out, starts typing comes to Star Room he says, Would you come down and, and read what I wrote? And I said, Yeah, you gonna you need me to proofread your copy, Barry. Sure. I'll, I'll be right. No, he says, come on now. He goes, you're here all the time. You're around these guys. I don't know if I'm got if I'm on the right page or not. So I go down and I start I start reading this thing and I'm I burst out laughing because it's so he says I came back to Indianapolis and they moved. There's no Penske, there's no Unser. there's no Andretti. He goes, the Toledo mudheads taking over the world series he goes what happened to it was so funny and so right spot on and so well done and the speedway just cringed because here's the greatest sports writer of all time that just disemboweled and i just murray was my hero i mean he just he he goes now don't patronize me i said i'm not patronizing this shit's great you you nailed it i mean you absolutely nailed what's wrong. And, and it was just, uh, it was Vintage Jim Murray, man.
0: You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies. Go ahead, Bill.
1: I have to say one more thing about Hall of Famer Robin Miller, who wrote a column in Racer.com about his uh, upcoming induction into the uh, Motorsports Hall of Fame. And I counted. And I believe he wrote. He mentioned eighty-three names,
2: uh, other than
1: himself. And in my view, I put this on Facebook. That says all it needs to say about Robin Miller. In a column about himself, he mentioned eighty-three others.
0: Let me mention something else that I heard about Robin Miller. And I heard this in the mid to early nineteen nineties. Never really knew him still have never met him and hope to one day, maybe at lunch, but I was told by mutual friends that Robin Miller must pick up the check at lunch.
1: Yes. Robin is the most generous, loyal, um, unselfish. I, I, I he, I, the people that don't know him, see, they, they know what they, they judged him from what he wrote. And, uh, but the person is. But uh, that's
2: okay. He's
1: that's incredible. That's nice
2: of Billy Bob. Here's the thing, boys. It. <laughs> I got to spend my money on something. Bill Benner had to raise two beautiful daughters, and he had to. He had. Re, he had a real purpose in life. What's my purpose? I gamble. <laughs> I buy lunch. No why? <laughs> big deal. <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> you have been listening to <laughs> Leaders and Legends, a podcast Veterans. presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by. Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests have been Hall of Famers and damn good friends, Bill Benner and Robin Miller. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank
2: Good you. Time. I had a lot of fun. But you got you know you got more sponsors than Roger Pinsky. You might have to get into a different business.
0: <laughs> I'm happy if Mr. Pinsky wants to be a sponsor. And hey Robin, if you can get no, AJ hell. Foyt on the if you can get AJ Foyt on the podcast, you know, I'll 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 let you buy me lunch.
2: <laughs> he might be he might be stealing one of your sponsors. He hears how many you got. <laughs> All right. Always, always fun talking sports with Billy Bob and you. Thanks again, Robert.
0: Take care. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.